Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 38. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is, the, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. I saw a story online the other day. Uh, it was about forgiveness. Uh, it was about two boys who were brothers, and uh, let's call them Bobby and James. So they were fighting over their toys, and Bobby hit James. So James yelled for their mother. Their mother came and sorted out the dispute and uh, made Bobby apologize. But James was still mad. At bedtime, their mother said to them, Now, James, you need to forgive Bobby tonight. What if one of you dies before the morning and you never have the chance to forgive him? Here's a pre-parenting tip. Don't do this to your kids. So James thought a minute and said, okay, I'll forgive him tonight. But if we're both still alive in the morning, he'd better watch out. Uh, as we both know, as we all know, forgiveness is hard. But both Jesus and Paul tell us that we're supposed to forgive other people like God forgives us. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. That's the way we usually say it here. Paul says, bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you have the grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So that means there's a parallel between the way God forgives us and the way God wants us to forgive other people. Let's keep that in mind as we look at our passage for today. Forgiveness is so important to Jesus that it's one of the last things he talks about as he's on the cross. So this week, we're looking at the second of Jesus's seven last sayings. And uh, our passage is in Luke 23, verses 33 to 38. So I'm going to read it again. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Somebody who is near to death might be expected to pray for forgiveness for his own sins, but Jesus prays for the people who are crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Of course, we know that he doesn't have to pray for his own sins because he doesn't have any. Instead, in an amazing act, Jesus prays for his murderers. 
what is he saying by that, and why is it good news for us? We'll look at Jesus' saying in three parts, in reverse order. First, the part where he says uh, they don't know what they're doing, and then, secondly, uh, where he says forgive them, and then, finally, we'll look at what he sa- when he says father. So, part one, what does Jesus what does Jesus mean when he says that they don't know what they're doing? Now, the chief priests and the scribes clearly intend to kill Jesus. Uh, both Herod and Pilate know that Jesus is innocent. Pilate even tells the crowd that Jesus is innocent, but he condemns him to death anyway. Everything that is done to Jesus is done on purpose. So when Jesus says they don't know what they're doing, what does he mean? he's not talking about their intention, what is he talking about? Well, the, I think the answer to this is in the, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. The idea of sins of ignorance is a big deal in the Mosaic law. The law distinguishes between ordinary sins, also called sins of ignorance, which are committed uh, out of ignorance or out of weakness or out of uh, error, making mistakes, things like that. Uh, it contrasts between that kind, those kinds of sins and sins committed with a high hand, and uh, that is in deliberate defiance of the will of God. When I think of sins with a high hand, I think of somebody like waving their fist in God's face, so to speak. Some t- translations call those intentional versus unintentional sins, but I don't think that's exactly what the law is talking about. Uh, in the law, there are different kinds of sacrifices for different kinds of sins. Uh, There are even sacrifices for things like theft, lying, and fraud. Now, if we think of theft and lying and fraud, we think of uh, people intending to do those things. Uh, People who do them do them on purpose. But they're not necessarily doing them in outright defiance of God's will. So um, Leviticus 6 says that when thieves or liars or fraudsters come to recognize their guilt, They can make sacrifices and be forgiven. But there are no sacrifices and there are no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness for sins committed in deliberate defiance of God. People who do these things know that they're wrong, know that they're sin, but they don't care. So people who sin in this way with a high hand are to be cut off from the people of God. Here's how it's described in Numbers 15. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. The NAV uses the intentional, unintentional. And when atonement has been made, that person will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether a native-born Israelite or a foreigner residing among you. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. So the problem isn't so much their intention as it is their attitude. Sins sins committed with a high hand can't be forgiven because the person who commits them is openly defying God. They're not interested in repentance and forgiveness. So they have essentially excluded themselves from the people of God because they've essentially written off God. Unless and until they get to a point of repentance, they can't be forgiven. 
in Jesus' case, the chief priests and the scribes and the Romans don't realize the significance of what they're doing. The chief priests and the scribes think they're killing a blasphemer and a political agitator, not the Messiah, the Son of God. Pilate thinks he's just pacifying the crowd by giving them what they want. The soldiers think they're crucifying a pretender, not the actual king of Israel. So the people responsible for Jesus' death are sinning, but they aren't deliberately defying God's will. So Jesus asks God to forgive them for the sin they're committing in ignorance. When Paul talks about his sin of persecuting the church, he says that he was forgiven for persecuting the church because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. So that's why Jesus says they don't know what they're doing. They don't really get what it is that they're doing. Part two, what does Jesus mean when he asks his father to forgive the people who caused his death? What does it mean to forgive? Well, the word used for forgive in this passage can have several senses. It can mean send away or let go or set aside or cancel or pardon or release from obligation. In Luke's gospel, forgiving something, forgiving sin, is uh, compared to writing off a debt. For example, in Luke 11, that's Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, in the uh, NRSV translation it says, and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone indebted to us. The NIV says everyone who sins against us, but it's got a marginal note that says, in the Greek, it's really indebted to us. Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer in both translations says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, it'd be worth thinking about how this part of the Lord's Prayer has a bearing on our financial lives, uh, but that's beyond the discussion that we have today. My point is that in the Lord's Prayer, there's a comparison between forgiveness and writing off a debt. God forgives sins in the same way as somebody writes off a debt or cancels an IOU. Paul says that that's what happens at the cross. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. <clears throat> Some people think forgiveness is the same as excusing or rationalizing something that happens, but that's not really what forgiveness is. Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't asking the father to pretend that his murder isn't really all that bad. He's asking the father to excuse or forgive something that is inexcusable. Nothing can excuse the murder of the Son of God. But Jesus asks the father not to hold it against them anyway. Forgiveness releases someone from their guilt or obligation. Somebody who's had their debt forgiven doesn't need to repay the money. Uh, <clears throat> so by praying for his uh, murderers, Jesus is asking the Father to release them from the guilt that they would otherwise have. The forgiveness that we have because of Christ is even better than what the Israelites could have under the law because it deals with every kind of sin, not just unintentional or sins of ignorance, but every kind. In Acts, Paul says, 
Through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. When Jesus prays for his enemies, he's doing exactly what he taught his disciples to do. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. (coughs) Excuse me. Pray for those who mistreat you. When we love our enemies, Jesus says, we're acting like God does because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, Jesus says, just as your Father is merciful. This is what God does when he saves us. He shows mercy to people who are his enemies. And then he commands that we show the same mercy to our enemies as he shows to his. By the way, we were all his enemies when Christ died for us. In fact, Jesus says that the same mercy or lack of mercy that we show other people has an effect on the mercy or lack of mercy that God will show us. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, he's showing us what love for enemies looks like, and his example calls us to do the same. So, part three, why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them. So, why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Jesus said early on in his ministry that he had authority to forgive sins. When uh, people bring a paralyzed man to Jesus, he tells the man that his sins are forgiven. Then when people say, well, how can you do that? Only God can forgive sins. Then Jesus shows them that he has that authority by uh, healing the man's paralysis. He says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So if Jesus can forgive people's sins, why doesn't he just do that for the people who are uh, crucifying him? Why does he ask the Father to do it? Well, you know, the Father is certainly a forgiving God. We know that especially from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, especially in chapter 15, with the parable, yeah, the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. We can especially get an idea of God's forgiving attitude from that third story, the story of the prodigal son. I mean, in that story, the father who stands in for God uh, <clears throat> sort of runs out to greet his son who's coming home. He celebrates him, welcomes him, um, rejoices because he's been restored. According to Jesus, the Father seeks out people who are lost because he wants to restore them. So God the Father is certainly forgiving, but then so is Jesus. So again, why does Jesus ask the Father to forgive people instead of doing it himself? Well, none of the commentaries I looked at said anything about that. So I had to come to my own conclusions. And I think that at that point, Jesus couldn't forgive them yet because they hadn't repented and they had no faith in him. Uh, By rejecting Jesus, they were essentially rejecting the means of forgiveness. So, you know, he can't forgive them yet at that point. But later on, the father could forgive them if they did eventually come to repentance and faith. Repentance is really important in the Gospel of Luke. 
Uh, in Luke 17, Jesus tells his disciples, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Matthew's version of that teaching doesn't mention repentance, but Luke's emphasizes it. <clears throat> God's forgiveness of our sin is not a blank check. God takes sin seriously, and he requires repentance for our sins. That repentance basically just means turning away from sin. Uh, sometimes we think repentance means being sorry for our sins, and that's partly true. But really, repentance means, uh, as somebody I know put it, being sorry enough to quit. So it's not just we're sorry, but we're going to try to put it away. When we need to repent for something we've done, we have the Holy Spirit's help to do it. And that's true whether we've sinned against God or sinned against somebody else. <clears throat> when we're on the other side and someone has wronged us, we shouldn't write them a blank check either. Forgiveness does not mean letting everyone do anything they want to us. God does care about justice, even for us, uh, as much as he cares about forgiveness. When we've been wronged, real reconciliation can't take place, well, or the other way around if we wrong someone else. <clears throat> real reconciliation can't take place until the issue's been dealt with, if it's important enough, uh, and uh, repentance has happened. Apology has been made or whatever is necessary. <clears throat> So the, the repentance is necessary for true reconciliation. But then what happens if the person who's offended can't or won't repent? Maybe they just won't agree that they've done something wrong. Or maybe they've even died without having ever admitted uh, responsibility. So what do we do then? Well, I think this passage shows us that what we can do is what Jesus did. And we can choose to love our enemy. That doesn't mean we have warm, fuzzy feelings toward them. I mean, I'm sure Jesus didn't have warm, fuzzy feelings toward the people who were crucifying him. But we can pray for our enemies like Jesus did. And we can act for their good or their well-being. That might mean writing off the personal debt they have to us, um, metaphorically or literally. Or it may mean uh, allowing them, for their good, to experience appropriate consequences what they've done. Stephen follows Jesus' example. <clears throat> we can see in Acts, when Stephen was being stoned, he prayed for the people who were killing him and asked God to forgive them. <clears throat> Ken Sandy has an excellent book on forgiveness called uh, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. He says that forgiveness involves making four promises. First one is, I will not think about this incident. Second one is, I will not bring up this incident and use it against you. The third one is, I will not talk to others about this incident. And the fourth is, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. <clears throat> These four promises kind of clear the ground so that people can be reconciled. In the case of somebody who doesn't repent, we can do what Sandy calls positional forgiveness. We can make that first promise and promise not to uh, dwell on the incident and not to seek revenge. 
uh, we can maintain a merciful attitude toward the person and remain open to possible future repentance and reconciliation. But we can't promise not to bring up the incident and not to talk to other people about it because we may need other people's help to deal with the situation. And we can't reconcile yet because the other person is not acknowledging that something went wrong. But making that first promise, at least, can help keep us from uh, becoming prey to bitterness and resentment. So that's positional forgiveness. According to Sandy, uh, when a person does repent and the two people can deal with the issue, then transactional forgiveness can happen. When repentance happens, the person is ready to receive the forgiveness that we are ready to give to them. We can then resolve the incident in whatever way seems best. And then once the incident's resolved, we can promise not to bring it up anymore and not to talk to other people about it. Whether or not we make that final promise and say uh, we won't allow this to affect our personal relationship, that is, we can move to full reconciliation, whether we do that or not depends on a lot of things. Uh, it depends on how serious the thing was, the problem. It depends on how completely the problem's been dealt with. Uh, in some cases, such as abuse, it may not be appropriate to reconcile because uh, it may not be wise or safe to do so. Forgiving somebody, writing off their personal debt to us, doesn't necessarily mean that we predict would protect, protect them from all the consequences of their actions. For example, I mean, whether it's us or somebody else, it may be appropriate to make restitution. Or in some cases, if the uh, uh, offense is serious enough, it might have legal consequences that we don't or can't relieve, uh, relieve somebody from. In Jesus' own case, there were consequences to Israel's rejection of him even if God didn't hold them guilty for his death. Jesus had prophesied uh, that judgment was going to come upon Israel. He said that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and the temple would be destroyed. That was fulfilled in uh, AD 70 when the Romans, in response to a Jewish revolt, essentially destroyed Jerusalem. If all of Israel had recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and had followed his way of peace, instead of revolution, that fate might have been avoided. But as he prays for uh, his enemies, for God to forgive them, Jesus continues to hope that they eventually will be restored. And we can do that too. So, how is Jesus' prayer good news for us? First, it's good news because we're included in his prayer. We were once his enemies too, but now because of the salvation he's provided for us, we're part of his family. <clears throat> the Father has answered his prayer for us, and we are forgiven. Second, Jesus' prayer is good news for us because he's still praying for us. According to the book of Hebrews, Jesus can give people ongoing, final, permanent salvation <clears throat> because he always lives to intercede for them. If we are ever tempted to worry about what God thinks of us, uh, we don't need to, because uh, Jesus is our intercessor. Uh, better than any insurance policy, Jesus has us covered. 
Finally, Jesus's prayer is good news because it shows us how not to be destroyed by people who hurt us. Regardless of what other people do, God loves us. He's for us. He can comfort us and guide us and strengthen us by his spirit. We can turn away the anger and revenge that comes naturally and supernaturally love our enemies and act for their good. When we're willing to release other people from their sins toward us, we can also release ourselves from bitterness and misery. It's not an easy road to walk, but Jesus has walked it ahead of us, and the Holy Spirit is alongside us to help. Jesus' words from the cross, not just these, but all of the ones we'll be talking about, show us that he understands our pain, but he also shows us the way to heal. Many of us have heard the story of the martyrdom of Jim Elliott and four others uh, by the Warani tribe in Ecuador. This was in 1956. <clears throat> they made contact with the Warani, who were an unreached people group, and in their first, not the first contact, but the first face-to-face contact, because of various misunderstandings, the Warani killed four of the missionaries. Two years later, the husband of one of the missionaries, sorry, the husband, the wife of one of the missionaries, he was Jim Elliott, she's Elizabeth Elliott, she went back to live among the Warani tribe along with Rachel Saint, who was the sister of uh, Nate Saint, who had been killed along with uh, Jim Elliott. So they lived with the Warani for a number of years, and their witness to them uh, uh, led eventually to the conversion of the whole tribe. So Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint, one of the men who were killed, spoke at Brethren General Conference a few years ago. And with him was Minkai Nkedi, who was one of the Warani men who had killed Nate's father. The two of them had become close friends. One part of the story I didn't know that I learned from Christianity Today last year was that uh, one of the reasons why Elizabeth Elliot eventually stopped working with the Warani was that she had developed irreconcilable differences with Rachel Saint. So it's ironic, but maybe it's not surprising that the two women were able to take that huge step of forgiveness with the Warani people, but were not able to resolve the more ordinary tensions between the two of them, that they, they couldn't do that. For most of us, it's those everyday hurts that build up and eventually ruin relationships. As we celebrate Bread and Cup Communion in a moment, let's take a few moments as we approach that to reflect on whether we have any unresolved conflict with anybody, whether we're on the side of the offender or on the side of the offended. Let's resolve to work on those things. <coughs> Excuse me so that we engage in uh, Lent and eventually celebrate Easter in love and peace and freedom. Let's let the Holy Spirit to help, help free us from those things that might hold us. We can't guarantee that everything will turn out perfectly, but we can take care of our own side of things with God's help. After all, Jesus is praying for us. <clears throat> 